We're continuing some reflections on patience, and uh, in particular, just not just with patience, but with the whole path and understanding. It's this interesting part of our practice. You know, part of the practice really feels like we're lifting weights or we're walking from A to B and putting one foot in front of the next. But there's also part of practice that's a maybe, for lack of a better word, magical or transformative in a way that um, seems sudden. So I want to talk about patience as a kind of alchemy or the transformation of the mind, transformation of the heart, and how this is set in motion. And we could probably see the main ingredient of this alchemy, this transformation, as this capacity to connect with the present moment. And then it makes a lot of sense, because patience obviously has a lot to do with connecting, being present. In the same way that impatience is one of our primary ways of disconnecting. It's so ironic that a lot of our, a lot of the intention behind impatience, like what are we impatient for? Well, we, we want to connect, but i got to do this first. <laughs> or i got to fix this first. You know, my body's uncomfortable. And uh, when I get my body together, then I'll connect with the way it is. So impatience and many other aversive, afflictive mind states, emotional patterns, they, it seems like it's in the service of connecting, but it's endless. You know, we endlessly have one more thing to take care of. It's the interesting thing, when you get the chance to go on retreat by yourself, you know, just to have a solo retreat, set aside some time at home, or go someplace like one of the hermitages here at Holy Spirit. And uh, you'll see how, uh, how easy it is for there to be one thing after another you need to do before the next time you're going to sit down. Well, the kitchen could use a good sweeping, and maybe I'll check and see what the weather's like outside. And It's just interesting. I'm mean, Not that we have to be compulsive about sticking with some schedule when we're doing a solar retreat, but just uh, notice this part of the mind that is in one way or another frightened by or averse to connecting. This is a... Very potent passage, I think, from Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Actually, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm mistaken, it's from Heart as Wide as the World, another book by Sharon Salzberg, another wonderful book. And here she has a short few-page chapter on patience. She has this wonderful couple paragraphs about patience and about the relationship between connecting with things as they are, and patience. She says, True patience is constancy, the consistent willingness to use this moment of reality as a vehicle for wisdom and compassion. Patience is not about gritting one's teeth and saying, I'll bear with this for another five minutes because I'm sure it will be over by then and something better will come along. Patience is not dour, it's not unhappy, it's a genuine connection with whatever is happening right now. Patience is a great power. 
And later she says, patience is a steadfast strength that we apply to each moment. It does not imply a sense of succumbing to, a complacent giving up, or even an endless standing by. Patience does not be mean being enslaved by the moment, nor does it mean that we must accept whatever comes without taking action to change things. And she ends this paragraph by saying, Patience is actually quite simple. It means a full and open connection to the moment, a connection that in- involves tremendous integrity. And that's a, that last phrase, I think, is especially useful. You know, this idea that patience involves tremendous integrity. So it's not a stopgap measure or like the default, when nothing else works, I'll be patient. But we see it as, you know, like the highest practice and uh, a practice that involves a lot of intelligence, not just this sort of blind patience, this, which obviously would end up being something like resignation, giving up. So in that sense, you know, patience involves wisdom. It's really aligning with the truth. It's a means to align with the truth, making the truth our own. And it's a real independence. I think I mentioned maybe last night about how patience, you know, all the paramis are considered rafts to cross the flood, the flood of our the mind's outflows, this endless um, seeking to control, seeking to fix, seeking to get, seeking to attain, seeking some stance or some place where we'll be safe. And that seeking is endless, never ends. And it's a flood. It catches us and takes us and we're constantly then always doing what's next, struggling to get, to become. So patience is a means to cross the flood. And uh, I think I mentioned last night that this particular means, it's built out of the present moment. In fact, anything skillful, it arises out of the present moment. So we're patient with things as they are. This truth of our present moment. And this is really our only birthright as a human being. We don't really get anything except the way that it is. This is the one thing we get. We get this, this present moment. And are we, you know, always reacting to this by seeking something better or seeking to hold on to it? Or are we interested in a release with this or freedom with this. This is always so tricky in our practice, this chicken and egg thing. Ajahn Sumedho says it this way, something like, you know, if we don't begin with wisdom, if our practice doesn't begin with wisdom, we're going to end up with suffering. So patience has to have a real intelligence. It has to be grounded in understanding. It has to be about understanding. 
we end up running and struggling so much in life and we don't even know, you know, it isn't even based on intelligence, like we don't even know what we're running for or trying to become. We just have a strong, deluded sense that this isn't it. Isn't that right? I mean, wouldn't we stake a lot of money on that fact that this isn't it? <laughs> this can't be it. And, and with that comes this, I mean, this sense that it's somewhere else. And we're pretty sure about that. It's got to be somewhere else. It's not here. Because I'm so ordinary, my mind is so ordinary, ordinarily caught in, you know, really ordinary defilements, and not even special defilements. (laughs) (laughs) Like just being bored, just wanting to be home in bed and the good movie, or whatever it might be, you know. So we're so, it can be so, we can be so confident about this. So part of the, you know, this basic orientation of there, there is a flood is a recognition of dukkha. And just that is a, a powerful orientation, like to know that um, this experience isn't sufficient. It's unsatisfactory. This is really the technical definition of dukkha. It's unsatisfying, dissatisfying this moment. And so that's the truth of the flood. And we need that truth. Otherwise, we, um, we don't, we're not interested in the moment. And we need to know something about the path across the flood. You know, we talk, we've been talking about patience this weekend, but in a more general way, this path, the the inklings we get of this path is, you know, something to do with intentions matter. Like the way to get across has something to do with the quality of my mind, the quality of intention in my mind, because it matters. If I'm fuming all day, angry all day, that's not the way to get across the flood. So we have some sense, all of us already have a little bit of the lay of the land, like intentions matter. And then the deepening understanding, that's that's what in Buddhism we call karma, like understanding the truth of karma. And then in a deeper way, like a, a deeper understanding of karma unfolds as the understanding of dependent origination. And you don't need to even remember that term, but it's basically an understanding of karma so deeply, understanding karma so deeply that the mind also understands that karma isn't happening to anybody. There is karma, but it's not happening to anybody. It's just a natural process of cause and effect or interdependent unfolding, but not happening to anybody. And these two understandings of the flood of our situation really relate to patience a lot. We see how Patience really comes out of this understanding, just the basic understanding of karma, cause and effect. A lot of the reasons we're motivated to be patient is that we're seeing in the moment that anything I do will be counterproductive. That's because we understand cause and effect. 
Like I'm not going to thrash around in life and cause myself suffering and other people suffering. I'm just going to be patient until there's more clarity. And then the deeper expression of patience, a more profound kind of patience, is when we understand how impersonal it all is. That really allows the heart to let go. As Ajahn Sumero said that first night, that quote I read, let go, let go, let go, that if we understood this teaching that he's offering, we'd be saved from a lot of unnecessary suffering. Let go, let go, let go. And this brings up the third part of this, you know, this basic clarification that this process of clarifying the path, you know, where we appreciate dukkha, we appreciate the way across dukkha. So dukkha as a flood, this tendency of our mind to keep reacting in ways that just cause more stress. And then the clarification, like how to begin to work with it. Well, our actions, our response should be based on our understanding of karma and dependent origination. That intentions matter and that ultimately, I intuit, there's nobody behind the process of cause and effect. Actions having response. There are actions. Actions do have consequences. But all that is a natural process too. You see, it just begins to lighten the load. First, we lighten the load because we see how the whole thing works. Pay attention to intention. And you'll be better off. You know, We'll be better off if we really focus on intention. It's like we found the owner's manual for our lives. You know, pay attention. The most important thing is to pay attention to intention. If you really pay attention to intention, really learn about cause and effect, you'll be able to manage your life pretty well. Not perfectly, but pretty well. There will always be a little bit of a thorn. Even if we get really good at cause and effect, because we don't hold all the cards with cause and effect. So we can play our cards as best we can, but there are a lot of other things going on. And that keeps us looking at this whole process, and we begin to see there is cause and effect, but it's quite complicated, interdependent. And the more we look at that, that sort of uh, complexity and interdependence of cause and effect, the more we see it's so impersonal. And there's actually no center anywhere to it. And that leads to that deeper understanding. And that, that really brings us to the third aspect of this path, which is joy, or this taste of freedom. And all three we need to uh, link with patience. We need to, patience has to do with the experience of dukkha. You know, things not working, the moment being unsatisfactory. And really a compassion, like not wanting to add to the dukkha. And patience has to do with the beginning to understand how it all works, the deepening of understanding. And it has to do with the experience of joy. Like the see that patience isn't just a means to get across the flood, but it's also an expression of freedom. And that's really nice to think of patience as an expression of freedom or an expression of love or expression of joy. Not something heavy, not this grim thing as Sharon was talking about. 
So this uh, idea of dukkha, you know, this first part of patience, where patience is a way of, of appreciating, and it really is, it should be, I think, an appreciation, appreciating the noble truth of dukkha. This is a noble truth. It's actually an enlivening truth. It's not a grim truth. We want to be uh, enlivened by our understanding of dukkha, however we learn about it. And patience, of course, amplifies it. One of the great things about being patient is uh, like we sit down and, you know, and we're going to just be with the sit for the 45 minutes or whatever. And all of a sudden, it's, it's like that great metaphor, the myth of the Buddha under the Bodhi tree when all the forces of Mara attack. You know, this is sort of the quintessential person sitting down for a set. That night, the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree. And as uh, soon as he made the resolve to sit until he came to some understanding, it's like every part of his conditioning challenged that. You know, all the forces of seduction, all the forces of fear, even sort of poking at the Buddha's pride, like what gives you the right why do you think you deserve to be sitting here? Why do you think you're ready for insight? Of course, in this story, the Buddha remains unmoved. So we need to have a sense of this patience as a, an amplification of everything that's off. All of what we don't yet understand. It like will bring it to light, bring it to the surface. And allow us to have a healing crisis. You know, that's what we want. It's like, I'm sure you've experienced that on the retreat. It's a very common experience on retreat. Not Hopefully not the whole retreat experience. <laughs> but for periods of time where it's like it feels a little bit too much. Like things have been amplified too much. And it's hard to imagine getting to the end of the retreat. It really feels like we should leave. Many of you have told me this. I bet a lot of you haven't told me this on this retreat, <laughs> that there have been moments when you felt like leaving. Like, that would really be the best thing to do. And every once in a while, it may actually be the right thing, like that uh, powers of faith and, and other things that are needed to stay just aren't available. And it might actually be harmful to stay, like uh, a person feeling like uh, so trapped that when they finally get sprung, they really go far away from the practice, <laughs> never to come back again, or years later, maybe come back again. So sometimes it is okay to leave, and it's like choosing your battles. Okay, this isn't the time to face these demons, another time. And especially if you're aware that there, these demons aren't going away. So I'm going to pick the time when I'll sit down with these demons, but not now, not today. I don't have enough faith, I don't have enough confidence um, I feel vulnerable in a way that I can't get some space around. This is uh, Ajahn Sumedho talking, one of his famous stories, some of you have heard before, I'm sure, where he's talking about, in this case, restlessness, but uh, just that, how patience amplifies restlessness. So just giving yourself to a situation, and he's talking about um, his early years and in uh, Northeast Thailand with his teacher Ajahn Chah and he would give these terribly long Dharma talks 
and at that point he didn't understand it. I mean, he had to learn Thai first, and then he had to learn the particular dialect, which is similar, I guess, to Lao in northeastern Thailand. And so Ajahn Chah would go on and on, and Ajahn Smirin couldn't even understand the talk. So he says, uh, Peacefulness and tranquility can be terribly, incredibly boring. It can bring up a lot of restlessness and doubt. Restlessness is a common problem because of this, because the sensory realm is a restless realm. Bodies are restless and minds are restless. Conditions are changing all the time. So if you're caught up in reacting to change, you're just restless. Restlessness needs to be thoroughly understood for what it is. The practice is not one of just using the will to bind yourself to the meditation mat. It's not a test of you becoming a strong person who has to conquer restlessness. That attitude just reinforces another egoistic view. But it is a matter of really investigating restlessness, noticing it, and knowing it for what it is. For this, we have to develop patience. It's something we have to learn and really work with. And he talks about, you know, sitting um, through these talks. And he goes on, he says, I'd be sitting there thinking, when is he going to stop? I'm wasting my time. I'd really be angry thinking, I've had enough, I'm leaving. But I couldn't get the nerve to leave. So I just sit there thinking, I'm going to go to another monastery. (laughs) I've had enough of this. I'm not going to put up with this. And then he'd look right at me. And he'd have the most radiant smile. (laughs) And he'd say, are you all right? (laughs) And suddenly all the anger that had been accumulating for that three hours would completely drop away. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? After sitting there fuming for three hours, it can just go. So I vowed that my practice would be patience. Because, remember, the patience came not because he loved Ajahn Chah, but because he saw something that was so real, all that anger, all that frustration, and then he saw it disappeared. And it really begs the question, well, was it real? Because it seems so real. You know how that is. It seems so real. And then it goes away. This is what can happen in our sits. I'm sure it's happened to many of you many times, where it's like we get in a pressure cooker and it just seems so intense and it really feels like we're about to die or we can't handle it for another moment. And then something shifts. I mean, sometimes there's just insight and all of a sudden it's gone. But other times, more mundane times, we just get distracted. It's like totally like in this crisis mode, I can't take it for another moment. And then there's an interesting bird sound. <laughs> and then we begin to think, what is, what is that? You know, is that a woodpecker? or is, I don't know what that is. And it's like that huge hell realm that was oppressing us is all of a sudden gone. And if we're honest, you know, in that next moment, we'll go, where did that go? But when we're really deluded, we bring it back. That's the amazing thing. It's like, we're more concerned about inconsistency than about feeling good. It's like, wait a minute, I was suffering. So what was that, suffering? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we get ourselves all wrapped back up in it. It's really insane. But seeing that can be really useful. Like, we see how insane the mind is. Like, it really is tied to this consistency. I was suffering. You can't fool me. 
this is a bad set. And we bring ourselves right back to it. But anyway, just seeing that flip made him really appreciate that container, that patience. Like, I'm just going to go to these talks. I'm just going to go do the next retreat. I'm just going to sit tomorrow morning. I'm just going to keep doing this. And I don't care if the sit's bad or good or in between. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to stick with this container because it's teaching me something. I'm learning something from it. I'd come to all the talks and through all of them, as long as I could physically, uh, and sit through all of them as long as I could physically stand it. I'm determined not to miss them or try to get out of them, just to practice patience. And this is especially um, poignant uh, when you think about so much of the, in, uh, what's the right word, complications of being a monastic. I mean, it's really just on one level, just the dealing with the robes, which are designed not to stay on. <laughs> and, you know, if you ever watch a monk or a nun with her robes, you know, you see, they have to just make it part of their way of being that they're constantly adjusting the rope because it lasts for a while, depending if they're moving, you know, a few minutes, and then they got to adjust it again. And it's like, you would think, oh, those robes were designed for 2,500 years ago. Somebody should intervene and, you know, use snaps or Velcro or something. Um, what are they, you know attached to the past. And, you know, a lot of the monastic traditions, they have changed. But uh, in the Thai forest tradition and some of the other more conservative traditions, they really stick to the original way. Because I see it, not that it would be wrong necessarily to change, but they, they've transmuted it into something that can be a teacher for them. It's like, oh, this takes a lot of patience to hang out with this you know, this particular form of having these robes that are like this, or having this retreat. I mean, there's so many ways to make the retreat better. We could have it so everybody gets their own room, and that um, when you register, you actually check your menu, like what you want, have served, <laughs> and then that would be available for you, and it would be delivered to your room. <laughs> and then you could, like, decide maybe by 3 o'clock what kind of Dharma talk you want that night. <laughs> And, you know, the sitting and, like, the weather, that's good. Some people don't like all the sun. You know, they prefer, sort of, it gets the mind a little too too much space. They need more of the gray, the Seattle type of weather. Or you, but you could get just the right thing for yourself. But, you know, that would be its own kind of hell realm, having all of those choices. And we can we start to relate to the different... Um, containers of our life, the different limitations of our life. I don't know if uh, some of you know about, uh, I'm just forgetting his name now, a wonderful teacher, more in the Hindu tradition, who did a lot of prison prison work over the years. Uh, He died recently. Bo Lazo? Oh, yeah, Bo Lazo. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, and... uh, uh, and uh, one of the things he would talk about, and he had a newsletter that was uh, just wonderful, where prisoners you know, from different places around the country would write him letters, and he'd respond to them. 
And just the way that people in that very limited life situation, being imprisoned, could really use the limitations of that form for practice, to develop patience, to develop like uh, freedom from suffering, as opposed to imagining how good it will be when I get out or when conditions change. And the same with illness, change with same with the, the sort of limitations of our relationships with our parents, with our partners, with our kids, with our friends, with our job, with our body, and all the limitations we have with our bodies. There's a, a place in practice, you know, when we do commit, you know, just seeing the relationship between patience and commitment, where it brings out this slow burn. We want so much for something to be different than it is, to be over. You might have heard some of your yoga teachers talk about tapas. There's a whole movement now in hatha yoga about turning the temperature up in the room and letting things burn. But in spiritual life generally, there's the heat of not acting on our tendencies. We have these tendencies, these habits, like to want to move our body when it hurts. You know, so just in that very ordinary way, in this form that we use a lot, like sitting still for 45 minutes in the morning and do our daily practice, you know, and to, to work with some degree of resolve. You know, people have different relationships to stillness in their sitting practice. But every one of us should play with it and to, to take it as a container, stillness. And to feel that burn to some degree of wanting to move, be perfectly okay to move, there's nothing inherently evil about moving the body, but deciding not to move. Just playing with that container. It's the same with fasting, or like doing the eight precepts where you don't eat substantial food past midday, which a lot of lay people, let alone the monks, which generally have to do that, but a lot of lay people do this from time to time too where you just decide, okay, I'm going to fast from my midday meal until breakfast in the morning. And then you have all those tendencies to have food in the evening. It wouldn't be evil to have food in the evening, but you're just going to play with not having food. Just be patient with the tendency to eat, the desire to eat. And it's just so interesting. Such, it becomes such a powerful teacher. And this can, uh, you know, we enter these timeless zones, like uh, initially, it's just that burn of tapas, like we want, but we're playing, we're kind of practicing with that desire, and we're practicing like, oh, there's a choice to feel it and not act on it. So there's, just to keep it simple, there's two choices, I can act on the desire, or I can feel the so-called burn of it, like the wanting to do it but not doing it. So the the burn is not that it would be right to do it, but we're resisting a habit. So it's burning. It's like wants to move, but doesn't. It's like when you have an engine moving or a motor moving, but you, you don't let it move. It can heat up. 
wants to move, but we're not letting it move. And that heat, actually, it burns away the tendency because each moment the mind is resisting that movement, it's like uh, proving, it's demonstrating that you can have the intention and not act on it. You know, this is the heart of restraint. This is what we mean by restraint. And, you know, we would all be dead long ago if we didn't know how to restrain ourselves from certain actions. I mean, just like to stop eating when we're full, that's a restraint. You know, we'd be very sick if we couldn't stop eating at some point because it tastes good, it still tastes good. Or, you know, any number of other things we could continually consume, much to our you know, detriment. So if we stick with that burning long enough, it, we enter a, a sort of timeless place. It's like a confidence arises, uh, like a joy, a power really, a confidence that like, there's some independence from the conditioning of the mind. There is a conditioning of the mind. It's very seductive. When the mindfulness is weak or wavers, it's very easy to get caught in the condition, what the mind, what the habits of the mind are telling us to do. But when we hang out with that burning long enough, there's this confidence arises, like a sense of being free from the conditioning of the mind. And there's real power to that. I remember my first sense of this, I think it was in high school when I first read uh, Siddhartha, the book by Herman Hesse, um, sort of a fictionalized version of the Buddhist life, not really exactly like the, the Pali version of it, but it's a very interesting book and beautiful book, I think, in some ways. But that person, Siddhartha, which, if you don't know, is the family name of the Buddha. Um, so in, in this novel that Herman Hesse, this German writer, wrote, um, there's a spiritual seeker named Siddhartha, and one of his powers, he says, is, I can wait. And you remember that? And I was like, it's like, to think of that as a power, like to be able to sit down and not have a problem waiting. And just let things happen. And being content with letting things happen. Letting things unfold without our participation. This is, I think, Sharon talking about one of her teachers, Manindaji, This is that chapter on equanimity that I was reading from earlier today during the metta, guided metta time. But here she says, such balance does not mean that we do not feel things anymore. Meditation does not turn us into gray, vegetative blobs with all the feelings washed out. The Buddha taught us, taught that we can feel pleasure fully, yet without craving or clinging without defining it as our ultimate happiness. We can feel pain without fully condemning or hating it. And we can experience neutral events by being fully present so that they are not just fill-in times until something more exciting comes along. This non-reactivity is the state of equanimity, and it leads us into the freedom in each moment.
And here's that section I was mentioning about Manindaji. She starts by telling the story that Joseph Goldstein tells a lot. She's just quoting Joseph about when he was a kid and checking on the carrots that he had planted for a science project, maybe in like first grade. And of course, when you dig up the carrots to see if the seeds have started to sprout, you end up killing or stopping the, the growth. So Sharon says, this is the kind of patience we bring to meditation practice. My teacher Manindadri used to say, in meditation practice, time is not a factor. It is not something that is relevant in this process. Practice is timeless. To play spiritual practice in the context of time means anticipation, disappointment, expectation, and betrayal. It is like planting a garden and trying to make carrots grow faster than they actually can grow. They grow in their own time, in their own way. We plant the seed, we nurture it, we water it, we let it be. In our daily lives, the heart of patience might manifest as a resolution to simply do what needs to be done. And so this is like part of that transformation of patience is from this slow burn, you know, tapas, the heat of, uh, let's just say, being still when the heart, mind is inclined to do, to act, to resist, to fight, to struggle. And then entering that timeless place and the confidence that the heart, in a sense, can transcend or be free from the conditioning of the mind, not bound by the conditioning of the mind. It's a real insight, like to have desires, to have fears, but not to sort of be inside of them. So we're not like pretending we're not afraid. And, you know, I'm sure you've had this if you've had to work with fear in practice. A couple nights ago, I was uh, reading uh, one of Ajahn Chah's stories about being in the cemetery, the charnel ground at night. It's one of his famous stories where he, being a young monk and facing his fear of ghosts, he stayed in the charnel ground. And, you know, it's a, you know, really powerful story, but all of us have had terrible fears, things we don't want to face. Even on the retreat, some memory or some idea of being alone or even facing the fear of like something that we did that was really stupid and we have a lot of shame around and uh, and it's there, you know, it arises in our practice, it comes up, we, we remember it. And that even, even physical pain, like the willingness to turn toward the pain, to actually be interested in it, not in order to make it go away, but because it's true now. It's the way that it is now. It's literally my life now. Why wouldn't I include it? Why wouldn't I be intimate with it? You know, am I taking my stance on control or taking my stance on connection? What is our path? You know, what has life taught us works? Struggle, disconnection and struggle, or turning toward and with connection, with love and interest. 
You know, how many times do we does life have to teach us before we synthesize the lessons? <laughs> you know, oh, struggling doesn't actually work. You know, resisting, denying, disconnecting ultimately doesn't help. It only hurts. Turning toward, as difficult as that is, as scary as that can be, seems to work, seems to be enlivening, seems to be liberating. And part of that that freedom is, um, it's like distilling from our experiences that it isn't actually dangerous to open to fear or to open to what is uh, hard to bear, like pain or uncertainty. Or for some people, it's, it's really doubt that's hard to bear. You know, that the experience of... <laughs> I remember one... 10-day retreat, I think back in the mid-90s at IMS, and uh, I I distinctly remember going to my room, I think it was a a 20-day retreat, there was like uh, nine days, or an 18-day retreat, nine days of loving-kindness practice and nine days of Vipassana practice, and uh, I remember going back to my room in the middle of the day, and... uh, I just, it's like, it felt like a real insight, like, and I, at that point, you know, I'd been practicing for like 13 years, and I considered myself really dedicated, and uh, and I remember lying there on my bed, and I just had such a trustworthy uh, insight that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> you know, and, and like, like I, I was pretty sure. <laughs> And it was just so interesting how, initially, how unbearable that thought was, like how frightened I was. It was because, you see, when the sense of self is defined by being somebody who knows what they're doing, and then to see that, it's like it really is a kind of death, the death of that sense of self. Now I'm really comfortable (laughs) not knowing that I don't know. And it's like, it's just interesting, like, that death was really useful. Like, not having to be the person who's, who knows. I mean, it still comes up, but now I, that's a pretty greased, well-greased movement of freedom, like, like, not having to be the one who knows, be the one who's certain, be the one who's accomplished or something like that. It just is such a relief not to have to be that kind of person. and But just always the, the initial place is very scary for us. Some of you know this story. Um, when I was a little kid, I don't remember it, but I, I was about four. Um, I was sitting in my sister's lap. She was lying down. I was sitting on her head, one of those wooden mallets that you use to pound in the wooden pegs and you flip it over and pound them the other way. And I knocked her front tooth out. She had just gotten her adult tooth in. She was like seven. She was, I think she's three years, three and a half years older than me. And uh, and evidently, you know, it was a traumatic experience and a lot of blood. I don't remember a thing. 
But I, st- but I did have nightmares when I was growing up about teeth exploding. <laughs> and finally, when I started meditating, it started to happen in my meditation. And I finally made the connection. I, you know, sort of like, oh, yeah, of course. Like, and I had, to, I had to face that fear because, of course, it's like a panic attack. The last thing that occurs to you when a panic attack is arising to actually get interested in it. What feels like uh, life or death is to run from it. We've got to run from it. And, of course, it's that movement away from the anxiety that amplifies the anxiety, that actually leads to that inner explosion. And if actually we turn toward it, there's a resolution. And then when I finally could consciously turn toward that psychological experience that appeared in the mind as a tooth exploding, it stopped happening. never happened again. And so this is the the thing about patience, like willing to go through that narrow place, that place where it's like the mind collapses and then it opens. And there there is that sense of independence or freedom or timelessness or grace. I think I mentioned the other night, maybe it was Trungpa Rinpoche who in Buddhist terms defines grace as patience, patience as grace. Here's a little bit more from Achan Sumedho talking about patience and uh, and really seeing it as, you know, these times as a teacher. And he's it's the same chapter I read from, but he's talking about another time a little bit later and how, uh, again, Ajahn Chao, whether he did this consciously or whether the wisdom was just, it was just intuitive, like just knowing what to do to uh, kind of cause problems for his students. <laughs> so... He, Ajahn Sumedho, and another Western monk were really serious, you know, and he makes, Ajahn Sumedho makes fun of himself about being a serious monk and wanting to practice, and at this time he, he had his own little cave near Ajahn Chah's monastery, and there was a big python in the bottom of the cave, and he had a platform to stay away from the python, and this big fierce owl that was there, and all these things, you know, but he kind of grew to like it, you know, being this serious Buddhist monk and wanting to do the real practice. And Ajahn Chah then, of course, somehow, maybe intuitively, maybe psychically, who knows, picked up on this and this other monk who had similar tendencies going on in his mind. And then would start inviting Ajahn uh, Sumedho to accompany him when people in the villages would invite them for various kinds of Buddhist and other Thai festivals. And, you know, there'd be all the paraphernalia, the lights and the loudspeakers and the music and, and the monks are sort of props in Thai culture, you know, they just sort of you have your monks there and <laughs> they give talks and, and you know you can imagine these serious people thinking how stupid these Thai customs are and how real practice would be in my cave with the python and the, <laughs> the big scary owl and so anyway, he's, he's kind of fuming and complaining and he says, Then I began to see for myself. I remember sitting there thinking, Here I am getting all upset over this. Is it that bad? What's really bad here is what I'm making out of it. What's really miserable is my mind. 
loudspeakers and noise and distraction and sleepiness, I can put up with this. But what's, uh, but it's that awful thing in my mind that hates it, resents it, and wants it to le- and wants to leave. That's the real misery. That evening I saw what misery I could create in my mind over things that actually I could bear. Things that as a very clear, uh, I remember that as a very clear insight into what I thought was miserable and what really is miserable. At first I was blaming the people, the loudspeakers, the disruption, the noise, and the discomfort. I thought that was the problem. Then I realized that it wasn't. It was my mind that was miserable. If we reflect on and contemplate Dhamma the way it is, we learn from the very situations which we like least, if we have the will and the patience to do so. And I think it's just an encouragement. You know, we don't have to, most of us don't have to go looking too far for difficult things. It's really just about, it's not even like we have to stay with them longer. It's just that when we, when something isn't changing, then really use it as a teacher, not as a problem. And to really see that, that crossroads, like, I can make this a problem, I'm really good at making things like this a problem, or I can make it a teacher and really use it. And this is not just in small things, like uh, bearing with traffic for 15 minutes, but even aspects of our life that aren't likely to change, like, for example, the aging process, or taxes, you know, are we going to make forever in our life, are taxes always going to be a boogeyman? So, you know, something we resent and, and feel like it's being imposed on us by idiots? Or can we just turn toward that, that sort of part of life that we don't get to keep everything we earn? That we have to, in this very inefficient way, we have to give a share of what we earn to the common good, no matter how wasteful, how destructive some of what they do, those guys do, you know, (laughs) the others out there, what they do with it. I mean, we can make, I know people who just suffer so much around these things, or people, I'm sure some of you know, like people who listen to certain news programs or certain points of view where they get so worked up about the way it is and it just makes so much sense to them to be so hateful so angry when they could be making it a teacher and really a cause for insight and freedom and this is really our choice with everything that's difficult in our life or challenging or uncertain in our life teacher or heavy weight Just the last thought from Lao Tzu. You probably have heard this before. Do you have the patience to wait till your mind settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? This is just a kind of a closing sense of patience as something uh, leading to Nature being nature. It's like patience, one way to understand patience is it's a way of burning out ignorance. 
leading to nature being nature. You know, if we stick with some things, I am so grateful that I have just, as bad as my sitting practice has been on and off over the years, you know, bad meaning like maybe not completely wholehearted, you know, years of drowsiness, years and years of overstriving. I mean, looking back on the big sweep of more than 30 years of practice now, you know, it's like, it's not a pretty picture, a lot of it. <laughs> I, can, I remember after one long retreat, someone saying to me, yeah, it looked like you were really sleepy. I mean, I didn't think I was sleepy, <laughs> but evidently I was doing something that made the person think I was sleepy during that retreat. <laughs> but I'm just so glad I've just stuck with it, you know, just kept putting in my time. Same with the study. You know, it's like the more you study, the more you reflect on these teachings, it just becomes part of how your mind sees the world, operates in the world. It replaces the other ways our mind might be seeing things or operating in the world. And I'm so grateful that these teachings of the Buddha are just kind of part of the way my mind works, the way the mind, my mind sees things now. But we have to be willing to sort of give ourselves to this without impatience, you know, without expecting the results. So just the last line, which is such a beautiful uh, little passage. A person has made at least a start on discovering the meaning of human life when he or she plants a shade tree under which this person knows full well they will never sit. And I really like that. I mean, this is how I hold the whole teachings on you know, rebirth, you know, because it's not quite right to think, well, I'm going to take rebirth. I mean, do we know who we were in the previous life? We, but somebody is going to have to deal with what's being set in motion in this life. So we could have a little compassion, like let's plant some trees in this life. So whoever, whatever, you know, this whatever gets set in motion here, whoever has to live through that, live with that, that they have a little bit more shade, a little bit more ease in their life because of the work that we're doing. And this really changes our motivation so that we're really practicing for everybody's well-being because we don't know who's going to be the recipient of our neurotic tendencies or our wise, beautiful tendencies. But somebody, we know karma well enough, we've observed life well enough that there are consequences to action. So it, it doesn't die. When the body dies, it's not like what's been set in motion and the mind dies. The mind and the body are different trajectories, right? The body, you know, is born, it ages, it matures, it begins to fall apart, it dies. But that's not the trajectory of the mind. You can have a very excited, enlivened mind at 96, and you can have a very dull, lethargic mind at 6, you know. So the trajectory of the mind is, just keeps going. And the question is, what are we doing with that trajectory? What can we do with it? So we'll just let go of the words, take a breath or two together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash 
donate.